Hi there folks, welcome to Human Nutrition and Lifestyle. A little introduction today to our podcasting guest. Mary is a very knowledgeable nutritionist, as you will see. She's actually a director of nutrition. Having listened back to our chat myself, I found she managed to squeeze in an amazing amount of information. I would definitely listen to this one more than once to really absorb her knowledge. She talks very fast too. And remember to listen afterwards for my thoughts and what's new at Human Nutrition Lifestyle. So here we go. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to Human Nutrition Lifestyle podcast today, everybody. Today we've got a very exciting guest for you today. We've got Miss Mary Ruddock. Is it Miss or Mrs? I don't know. (laughs) Miss. Miss Mary Ruddock. So Mary, if you want to introduce yourself and tell everybody uh, who you are and and how you come to where you are today. Sure. So first, I want to thank you for having me. Uh, You know, I always had a passion for health, I would say, growing up but uh, I'm a nutritionist now and I work one-on-one with people directly. And then I also work with some health insurance companies and uh, some food uh, companies in the States as well, driving um, more health focus to those products. But I got into it after an accident. I was living overseas and caught a bug that infected my brain and caused uh, illness in most of my organs. And I ended up being really ill for 12 years to where uh, Western medicine couldn't really do anything for me. And at some point, as I think we all go through, who have been through a chronic illness, you start to realize no one is going to come and save you. You have to get yourself better. And so I started really doing a lot of my own researching. And I I realized that I had glossed over a lot of things thinking that, well, I already eat healthy and these kind of things. And I hadn't dug deeply enough. And when I started digging, I was blown away by all the secret gardens that I found. And luckily some of those secret gardens of knowledge ended up putting me into full remission. So when that happened, I went back to school for nutrition and I've been working in private practice ever since then and trying to uh, really help people rebuild their microbiome. I'm a little bit different than many other nutritionists in that I, I do specialize more in the microbiome of what we know of it and, and getting the nervous system and the immune system back online. For a lot of my career, I specialized in mental health and, and nervous system conditions. There's the number of health conditions uh, like neuropathy or epilepsy, but a lot of people don't realize that diet can can directly affect the nervous system. So I work with a lot of nervous systems and those kind of things. But as as you know, through the last decade or so that I've been working one on one with people, I've wanted to see more of some of my research hands on. So many of the the books and the studies that I had read about, about different parts of the world and regions, I really wanted to dive in there myself and see if what I was reading was true. Because one thing is, I'm sure you've seen yourself, a lot of nutrition research is is poorly done. It's not done by nutritionists or or someone with a history of of studying food. And so there's a lot of oversights and things that are quite naively and innocently missed when, when conducting the study. And also, it's very hard to do a real study because there's there's so many factors involved with diet and lifestyle. So I wanted to go to these regions and see if what I had read was true or not. And so for the last several years, I've been traveling the globe and studying with traditional cultures and also seeing the impact of the modern diet on those cultures when they adopt that and how different that is from from really their just um, impeccable health beforehand. 
Well, that's right. I mean, we so often hear about the blue zones, you know, and and there's so much misinformation out there about the blue zones, about what they eat and what their kind of lifestyle is. I know at the moment you're in Greece. So could you tell us a little bit about the kind of lifestyle and nutrition out there? I would love to. The blue zones have really been misrepresented. And again, I, I want to emphasize, I think this was innocent. I don't think this was someone going out there trying to like make a buck or have a sensational story, but, um, but it's really quite different. Uh, when I read the blue zone book, the initial one by Dan, uh, you know, he's, he's a journalist, so he doesn't have a medical background, which you don't have to have a medical background to pick up things, of course. But, uh, but when he went to these blue zones and he went to Ikari a lot, I think it was about 20 times, something like that. He, uh, he really focused on the plant-based nature of the diet, but I was really kind of taken aback by that because I live in Greece and I see that the diet isn't plant-based. Really, no one can claim the Greek diet because, because they eat a bit of everything and they eat the plants when they're in season, they eat the meat on a daily basis. They, depending on what region you're in of Greece, they eat beans, some regions don't. Um, but, but these things that they were saying were a staple of the diet, like the beans have, haven't been a staple anywhere that I've been in Greece and I, I live here. so. <laughs> So I wanted to go to Ikaria. And so when I got back from Africa, uh, just a few months ago, I made it a goal to go to Ikaria and I spent several weeks there and, uh, and luckily was able to do a lot of interviews. I even met some of the people that worked on the study and I was led into a lot of kitchens. The people there are just wonderful, I've got to say first, um, but they, they eat quite differently. They eat quite nose to tail. They eat a lot of pork and goat. Um, and that, that I had gotten an inkling of because I have some Ikarian friends here on the mainland Greece. And I had asked them, you know, I mean, obviously asking someone what they eat is, is never a good idea because we all have a skewed version of what we think we eat. But I would ask them without them knowing my, my stance on diet, because I really don't talk about it socially. Now that I'm having these podcasts, people are going to find out and the cat's going to be out of the bag. But, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I had asked them, I was like, well, what do you, you know, what did you grow up eating? What do you eat on a daily basis? And these are folks that the Greeks just for your own knowledge, they tend to, uh, if they move away from their home village, like if they grew up on Ikaria, they still tend to come back for the month of August and for all their holidays. So it, they call it going back to the village. But anyway, so, so they're still very much rooted in those regions, even if they live in Athens now. And so I asked them what they ate on a daily basis. And I, I was surprised actually, uh, but they said goats. And they were like, oh, we eat goat every day. And I was like, every single day. And they were like, yes. And I was like, year round. Yes. And, and they, you know, that's their staple. And once I got there, it wasn't too surprising because it's a very rocky, rocky, arid island. And, uh, and so it's not great for growing things. You couldn't grow grain on that island. There's no big plains. And there's also not the, um, the quickly growing grass that you would need and also the, the flat land for pasture, for, for cows and cattle, that kind of thing but it's perfect for sheep, goat, and wild pigs. And so that's what they eat a lot of. And what I saw to answer your question was um, very much nose to tail. There wasn't a restaurant I went to that didn't have liver as their special. That, that's what they were very proud of and serving for the day. And I have to tell you, they, they do it really well. Um, the, the Greeks, they serve food quite simply. They don't use a lot of like, um, uh, complicated sauces or spices, but because of that, they cook meat incredibly well where you don't need 
anything else. It's just delicious. And, um, and they, they've really gotten that down. So, so it was a lot of meat and that I was surprised by because we were there in the high growing season. So this is something that's important with the Icarian studies. They, they've always been done in the summer. And this region, which I think is, is most likely common in the other blue zones, but I'll, I'll know as I finish my tours and these kind of things, um, is that they eat incredibly seasonally. So they don't eat uh, tomatoes in the winter. They don't even put it into a sauce for the winter. So, so they're really just eating it as it's fresh. And so if you go in the summer, you're gonna see a lot more plants being eaten, specifically the horta, which is the sauteed greens and the beet salads and these kind of things. Um, uh, and then in the winter, you're gonna see a lot less of that. And again, these studies were done in the summer, but those, those dishes are side dishes. They're not the mainstay. So this idea that, you know, they just sit around eating quinoa and beans is very much inaccurate. I actually had to really struggle to find beans on a menu. It was very rare when I would see it. And when I would, it would be like one item out of 20 would be beans. And I, I took pictures of every every menu I could, which was a lot because I was there for a long time. But but a lot of these restaurants, because it's not a tourist, uh, it, Greece is known for its wonderful tourism, right? But this island is really just for the Greeks for the most, most part. So they have tourism, but it's Greek tourism. It's not foreign tourism. And so uh, a lot of the menus were just oral, like what was caught that day. You know, if a pig was shot, okay, we're having pig today <laughs> and probably for two weeks, you know, kind of thing. So, uh, and then the wild greens would be picked and then dessert, um, they're not a sweets culture. They don't eat a lot of sweets. In fact, I only saw, I know the bakery was mentioned in the book, but I, the whole time on that island and I spanned the whole, you know, over the whole thing, I only saw two bakeries and they were rarely open and they were very small, which is quite different than the rest of Greece because most of Greece has a bakery on every corner along with a souvlaki stand with meat sticks. It's very easy to be carnivore in Greece, um, but, uh, but it's not, they're not a carnivore culture by, by all means because they eat the bread as well as the vegetables as well as the meat. Um, so it was, it was very high fat and also very high dairy, I would say. I think that's what's been really missed about the Icarian zone is that they eat a block of cheese before each meal. And then they've got the, um, you know, they do the yogurt dips and these kind of things. So, and, and then for dessert, if fruit isn't in season, they'll serve yogurt with honey. Uh, so again, more of like what we would eat as a quote unquote healthy breakfast, they consider dessert. That's how, how little sweet they tend to eat. I think the biggest takeaway to take from that is the fact that they eat seasonally and they don't just go out and get something from the supermarket like we do because it's available. And a lot of people always travel to Greece, um, mainland Greece or, or the, the bigger islands and see a different culture to what you've just explained because of the fact that a lot of the time they travel in the summer. So they see the fact that the Mediterranean diet incorporates all the fruits and the vegetables because, like you say, they're in season. But really, like you say, the Mediterranean diet is a more carnivore-ish type diet than most people give it credit for. 
Much more. Yeah, really much more. And it's so much so, and I, I want to emphasize, they, they have a supermarket on the island, but it's for the Greek tourists coming to visit their family. The, the Icarians don't use grocery stores. They grow um, on their property. They're known to have about three goats per person, and then they have sheep and chickens, and, and they use the, the goats and the sheep for dairy and for meat, and then the chickens for their eggs and also their meat. And, uh, and then they grow their own vegetables. Vegetables. And so it'll be things that we would consider like dandelion greens, those kind of things. They do a lot of the wild greens. They do a lot of the wild herbs, some herbs I had never seen before. Um, and some I was surprised by like Penny Royal, they use a lot of. And, um, but yeah, it's very much in season. So they're, they're not doing yeah, they're, they're just really not eating out of season. And I think we are so divorced from the idea of what's in season that we don't even know what that looks like anymore because we consider in season something that's come from anywhere in the country or within like 500 miles that kind of thing um or even you know growing up in the states we would consider anything that flew in in season so um so it's really quite different because i know from touring around greece in, through the last few winters when you go to the mountain towns you often can't get any greens or vegetables at all they might have potatoes but and what, what most people don't realize is that potatoes, bell peppers, tomatoes, these things that we associate so heavily with the Mediterranean diet really aren't Mediterranean at all. They're very new to the diet. They came over with the Americas and they, they weren't trusted because they gave the, the pigs arthritis when they fed them to the pigs. That's how you would test a food back in the day since pigs will eat anything. And so they weren't, they weren't eaten for hundreds of years. In fact, they were used as decoratory plants. They were grown because they were beautiful instead of for food. And, uh, and so now they're a common part of the culinary cuisine, especially potato. Potato has really taken over the diet. But I'll tell you, when I talked, when I did all these interviews, I, I put up a little YouTube video and it has a couple interviews, but the, the video is getting so long, I didn't want to lose people. So I have all these interviews I haven't put up. And when I would talk to them, they would often, especially the healthier they were, no matter what age they were, they didn't eat a lot of the potatoes. <laughs> it was like, it was, you could almost see if someone looked less healthy, they were eating more of the potatoes and that kind of thing, um, which is probably my own, my own bias. But, uh, but definitely, you know, the potato, the tomato, the bell pepper, the eggplant, these are all very new and not traditional Greek foods in any way, shape or form or Mediterranean either. Right, all part of the nightshade, we call them the nightshades, so all, all part of the nightshades, things that have um, anti-nutrients in them, things like that. We've talked about um, eating fruit and veg as part of a healthy diet, and I'd never say don't eat fruit and veg as part of a healthy diet, um, but what I try to promote is nutrient density and bioavailability. And in the nightshades, as you mentioned, the potatoes and the uh, aubergines, tomatoes, things like that, it's hard for your body to break them down to get the nutrients out of them. And is, is that part of what makes up our microbiome? Yeah, so it has a lot to do with it. In fact, I just taught a, a huge class about this to the GAPS diet practitioners a couple of weeks ago about the plant toxins, because there are plants that want us, we, they want us to eat them, right? So there are a lot of plants that we can eat and be very healthy eating a lot of and eating for long periods of time. So through all the seasons, we can be really healthy on those plants. And then there are other plants that actually don't want us to eat them. We're, we're eating their baby, we're destroying their ability to propagate. And so they have these little toxins that they put into them. 
And there's, you know, there's really hundreds of these different kinds of plant toxins, and some of them can be neutralized through different cooking methods or fermentation and these kind of things, but others can't, not very well, like solanine for example, or they make the other plant toxins worse, like solanine and lectins work together to really, really gum up our immune system, basically. And, uh, and that's their own defense system. And you can see that in the wild where, where people will, or animals will avoid certain plants. And, and, you know, the way that I work, I really look at, I try to go to these regions where people are eating the same way they were before colonialization and the import of food from other countries. And when you see that, they tend to avoid these foods or they, they eat them very limited. Uh, but there's certainly, you know, a lot of them aren't carnivore. They are eating plants. It's just that they're not eating the high toxin plants because you know, one thing that surprised me when I started to work and, and study in nutrition was all, I don't know about you, but I learned so many of the things I had been told were just completely upside down. Like, um, you know, we're told that there's a ton of calcium in spinach, which there is. If you take spinach into a lab and into a test tube and you dissolve it with, with acids, and then you can get to that calcium. But when we intake it into the human body, that calcium is bound up with oxalate and it just goes straight through us if we're lucky, right? <laughs> because we don't want it to bind to our tissues. Those oxalates can be insidious. And so, uh, and so we don't actually get that nutrition from that plant, at least in that example. And you can kind of neutralize it in spinach by cooking it. But if we're eating raw spinach salads, that can be problematic. Now, going to kind of the, the more traditional living with spinach, because spinach has been a, a longstanding food in the human diet. Uh, if you eat it for a season, let's say you eat, because it's a summer vegetable, right? So you eat it in the summer and you cook it, you're going to reduce the oxalate content. You're still getting too much for your human body to properly break down, but you have you know, nine months to clear out those oxalates from that spinach. So you're still getting some health benefit from eating it, or at least it's not really causing any kind of harm, right? In that kind of situation, if you're, if you're already healthy, if you have oxalate intolerance, it's another topic, but, um, but yeah, so there's, there's a lot of these kind of plant toxins in certain foods. And I, I find, like I said, the solanines to be the most insidious. I think they're the least talked about as well, but the, the lectins are, are largely problematic. I've seen them, I've seen really remarkable things when I take those out of my patient's diets. It's all the more reason to eat seasonally. Cause like you say, yeah. if you're infusing your body with all those oxalates and lectins and things from anti-nutrients from all the plants, and then perhaps you're only doing it for a few months per year, which then gives your body chance to get rid of those detox, if you like, and then go back to eating a more nutrient dense, more carnivore style diet and making probably, probably your bacteria, um, making better bacteria inside, inside your body. So, um, yeah. talk, talk, talk to, um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to hear about our microbiome. Some of them probably don't hear the word microbiome, don't really know what a microbiome is and what it does. Sure. So a microbiome, our microbiome is anywhere from 60 to 90% of our body. Uh, and it, you know, that's a huge portion of our body and the scientists are fighting about it, <laughs> whether it's 60 or 90%, but I say it's semantics. It's the bulk of our body. And it's this, this, uh, transitional body that is made of bacteria, viruses, and parasites. And they honestly do most of what we think we do. They make most of our feel good chemicals. They make a lot of our vitamins. In fact, in animals, they make vitamin C and all sorts of things. We've just lost that bacteria over time. Uh, 
they, uh, they break down our food for us. So we actually don't eat our own food. We eat their byproduct and they're largely responsible for if we're healthy or unhealthy. In a healthy human, their microbiome is very balanced and it's working for them. So it's really beneficial. It's doing great things for them. And if this person has a lot more grace, so they can get away with eating a lot more plant toxins and other, other toxins in general, living a more toxic lifestyle and these kind of things, they're not going to be hit as hard. Whereas if someone has a compromised microbiome and they do shift work and they eat the same food every day, they could be, they could be a little bit more hampered, right? <laughs> so, so these guys can be our best friend, or it can be the, the dragon in our own hero story that we need to kind of slay and, and rebuild. So how can people go about getting a better microbiome then? Is it, um, as we've always heard through lots of media and things, is it better to have a diverse microbiome, something that could be um, across the spectrum? So you could eat any particular food, making sure that your microbiome is diverse, or is it better to have staple foods, making sure your microbiome is focused on one certain thing or a few certain things? I'm so glad you asked that because I think this is a really big um, thing that often gets misunderstood in the dietary world and also the microbiome world. In the States, we have scientists who are studying the microbiome and they're really um, selling the idea that if your microbiome is diverse and you're healthy, and we also, I don't know if you guys have these as well, but and we have all of these tests that will look at your microbiome. Of course, it's only looking at your colon, which is like a very small amount of your microbiome, but it'll look at your colon and then tell you how diverse it is. And if it's diverse, then you get an A plus. And if it's not diverse, you get an F and you're told to take um, fiber and probiotics and all these kinds of things, but it's not accurate. And, and we know that historically, you know, like I was saying in the beginning, it's so hard to conduct a proper dietary or microbiome study because there are trillions of factors, especially when you bring in the microbiome, but, uh, but we can look at historical cultures and also modern day cultures that are in perfect health. So that's one of the things that I'm doing touring around. So if we take a culture like the Maasai in Tanzania, now the Maasai, for those who don't know, they, they have what we would call an extreme diet to them. It's normal. I think they would think our diet is extreme, but they just eat uh, milk. Uh, it's really high milk and then high blood and a bit of meat. So it's carnivore. They don't eat any fiber. They'll do, they have mangoes growing all over the place. They don't eat them. They'll do herbs as medicine if they need them, but they don't tend to get sick. They don't tend to get malaria. They don't get cavities. They're very tall and healthy and warrior types. And when their microbiome is studied, it has almost no diversity. And yet they're the picture of health, right? <laughs> None of us can even aspire to be as healthy as they are. Now, if you go across the lake where they live in Tanzania, there's about 27 other tribes and the most well-known is the Hadza. And they eat a hunter-gatherer diet, which is often kind of pinned as their diet as plant-based, but it's honestly not. They're kind of, um, they're totally different than the Greeks, but they're like the Greeks in that they eat a, a wide variety, right? So they're eating meats every day, they're hunting, uh, and and then they go up the tree for the, the honey in the honey season and they're eating the plants, they eat the tubers that grow. They don't farm. So uh, a misconception is that uh, because they eat a lot of plants that they're eating grains and things like that, they don't. They don't do the farming, they do the hunter gathering instead. But they have a very diverse microbiome and they're equally healthy. 
like literally radiantly healthy. And so, so people have looked at the Hudson and say, okay, we should all have a varied microbiome and that will equal perfect health, but they're totally throwing out the Maasai and all the other um, cultures that eat very limited and are also in perfect health. So in my mind's eye, you can have a lot of diversity or zero diversity and be very healthy. It has nothing to do with the diversity. It has to do with the quality of the bacteria that you have in there and the quality, I would say the integrity of your gut lining. So those villies, those beautiful fingers in the gut lining housing the bacteria. A lot of that came because in America, uh, the healthiest people tend to eat the whitest diets, but that's because the alternative in America is basically corn and soy. <laughs> so packaged in a million different ways, right? No one, if you ask them, they would say, no, I don't really eat a lot of corn or soy, but if you test their, their blood, it's chock full of corn and soy because it's just repackaged in a glamorous, beautiful looking food, food items, you know? Um, and so the people that take the time to grow their own vegetables in the States or um, do their fermentation and these kind of things, they tend to be a bit healthier. They tend to think about their health proactively. They tend to do the exercising and good sleep and all those things. And so when you pull a wide range of people in the States, you find that the, the more diverse the bacteria, the healthier you are, but that's, that's, unique in modern culture and it's unique in a processed food culture like the states so you don't see that elsewhere so whether whether it's diverse or not really we just need to focus on it being healthy so how yeah. can we how can we then say introduce the right foods to make sure our microbiome is healthy and we have enough good bacteria in there to focus on whatever we eat that we're, we're sure our microbiome has, has us covered I would say if you're already healthy, and I, I mean really radiantly healthy, like you don't eat coffee, you're jumping out of bed, <laughs> you're in a good mood all the time, right? You don't have any diagnoses, you don't feel puffy or any of those kind of things. So if you're really healthy, you were born naturally, you were nursed, you haven't had a lot of antibiotics, you have a lot of grace. All you need to do really is eat seasonally and eat foods that have been traditionally eaten in the region. You do want to eat regionally for where you are, not where you're from. Uh, and then you can get away with a lot more. If you're compromised, it's a totally different story because these bacteria eat different foods and the villi needs different things as well. So the, the good bacteria will eat anything. They're the easygoing ones, of course. That's why they're the good guys. So, but they, they like protein and fat. Those are their favorites, but they'll eat starch, they'll eat sugar, they don't care. The overgrowth and the pathogenic bacteria can only eat starch and sugar. Those are their only foods. With one exception, there's a bacteria that eats oxalates and only oxalates. But if you overfeed that one, it dies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so most of us don't have it anymore, at least in the States, only about 40% of the population still has the oxalobacter bacteria. So, so when I think there's still a tribe in, uh, in Africa, isn't there, that has that. I think um, it's been mentioned somewhere before I've heard it saying that the, the tribes in Africa still have the bacteria that breaks down oxalates. That's why they get away with, with eating a lot more of them sort of things. That's absolutely right, especially if you look at the regions that are cassava based, that eat more cassava planting, because those are higher oxalate foods, but they, they don't have problems with them because of the way they process it, the way that they don't eat it year round. They eat a lot of it during certain seasons and they have the bacteria to help their bodies break it down as well, which is really, really helpful. Also, what you eat with some of those plant toxins, like the oxalates, and then we'll get back to the microbiome, makes a big difference. So if, uh, if someone is eating dairy, 
when they're having a high oxalate diet, like the Greeks do, they tend to have the cheese with the greens, the oxalate binds to the calcium in the dairy and it comes through the body. It, it's not absorbed. And so you don't get a high toxin load. Whereas someone who's not eating dairy, but eating a lot of oxalates, they're in the world of trouble in terms of oxalate storage. So you'll find in a lot of these traditional cultures that did eat the higher oxalate diets and do have the, um, the oxalobacter bacteria in their body, they also relied on dairy as a staple as well. You tend to see them together. So going back to the microbiome, when one is compromised, you really need to starve down the bacterial overgrowth. We're not usually dealing with the pathogenic. Those folks are in the hospital, so we'll just push those over to the side. So those dealing with chronic disease, whether it's mental disease, physical disease, uh, inflammatory, whatnot, uh, you're dealing with the opportunistic bacteria. And unless we get those populations down and rise the good bacteria up, there's no coming back, at least from what I've seen in a condition. I shouldn't say it in that way because I've seen <laughs> I've seen people come back from everything. So I wouldn't have low hope. I would actually use this as this knowledge as huge hope that you can actually get over just about anything if you weren't born with it. So so what you want to do, you want to start starving off the uh, bacterial overgrowth. And luckily enough, they only eat starch and sugar. So that's easy. You just cut those things out of your diet entirely. And the reason why that works is because our good bacteria, right, they'll thrive on the protein and fat. And then there's our human cells, which we haven't talked about, but those are really important because human cells only require two nutrients and two nutrients only, and that's protein and fat. That's how they grow. So if you're eating a protein and fat and non-starches, non-sugars, that doesn't mean you can't eat plants. You could eat a lot of plants or no plants and shift the microbiome. So just depending on your condition and what your goal is, um, you would do different things. But uh, as you start starving off that bacteria, the good bacteria can start to grow and you can start to feed them as well. That can take a long period of time, depending on how sick you are, compromised you are, it can be very short. But the one thing I would want to really stress is that 100% uh, adherence to the zero starch is absolutely imperative because yeah, these bacteria, they're not, um, they're not French, right? <laughs> the French are all moderation, right? And <laughs> if we go moderation with the microbiome, we don't get better. Moderation, I would say diets of moderation work for moderately healthy people. When you're really, when you're really compromised, you've got to go quite a bit more deeply because you're not looking at, um, well, you, you specifically are looking at the microbiome. And these guys, if they're fed any time within their life cycle, they stay alive. And so let's say, let's say you're working with a, a lighter condition like weight loss, like you've been obese since you were a kid. And outside of maybe some hormonal issues on top of that, you haven't been severely compromised in any way, maybe some mild depression, these kind of things. You've mainly had obesity and you've tried a lot of diets and sometimes they'll start to work and then everything will come back, right? So you'll lose 20 pounds and then it all comes back over and over and over um, uh, like, like some kind of groundhog nightmare. Well, what you're often dealing with is a family of bacteria that lives for, for longer than you've done these diets for. So it's usually like a three or a six month family of bacteria. And if that bacteria eats a starch within that period of time, and it can just be a teaspoon, it can be a tiny amount of starch, it rebirths that whole family. And so even if, uh, let's give you a concrete example, let's say you had a three month family of bacteria that you were dealing with, and you went three months without eating any starch or sugar. Uh, and these are specific sugars. I'll go into that next. It's not all forms, but uh, you go three months without eating any of those foods. And then you're, uh, you know, you just, 
you say screw it one night and you order a pizza <laughs> and you just have a debaucherous night and you're like, it's cool. It was a carb loading night. People have these all the time. It's no big deal. And you go back to the horse. Well, now suddenly you have all these cravings again, you're, you're dissatisfied, you're hungry and you can't get back on the horse. And now all the weight comes back. What's happened is that you, you refed that bacterial family that was just literally just about to die. And so now you have to start the entire kitten caboodle over, right? And so what I see the most often is that people aren't doing these things for long enough and once or completely enough, they're doing these kind of diets of moderation, which I think both historically, we were just taught to kind of just eat in moderation because we were always just eating what was around, which actually benefited us much better or, or because of the weight loss uh, movement in the States, like the Weight Watchers and these kind of things that tell you, you know, points for this food, points for that, but not what is this food doing biochemically in your body and how is it affecting your hormones and your microbiome and these kind of things. And not, not intentionally, they just didn't have that level of knowledge. So they gave great information for what they knew. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's what you get into. So the microbiome is something that if you want to go in and, and work with, it can be your greatest gift. It can give you a brand new life. It certainly did so for me and it has for tens of thousands of others, but it does need to be respected. It can't be, uh, where you're having a carb night once a week and you think you're going to get somewhere with shifting it. That's right. I, I think if you do have any type of uh, nutrition uh, condition or, or something you're trying to fight, then you really need to consider your microbiome because like you say, a lot of people just end up on the yo-yo spectrum. They just go, they start off, they think, yeah, yeah, this is working for me. And then like, like you say, not realizing that that bacteria inside them still alive. And if you give it something to feed on, then you're basically back to square one you know, you're starting all, all over again. So stick when you find something that starts to work for you, you must stick to it. And you must continue to eat that way to be able to build a, a I want to say perfect, but not perfect, you know what I mean? Microbiome. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, it's absolutely imperative. The nice thing about it is that you do become free of the food addictions. You know, I see so much in the movement of the fat acceptance movement and food addictions and kind of, I'm hearing a lot more therapy talk in my sessions. You can tell people have been going to therapy for their food issues and these kind of things. And, um, and the thing that I wish people, more people would understand, and I think you kind of have to go through it to understand it, but is that those, those feelings of being out of control or desire for foods or these kind of things, they come from an imbalanced microbiome. They're coming from that overgrowth because again, that overgrowth wants to stay alive. So it gives you those starch and sugar cravings. And it makes you think like you will not get through the day if you don't eat that cookie or that jacket potato or something else. Right. So, <laughs> so so when you start to shift the bacteria and it, it can take different amounts of time for a lot of my clients, it's like three days. I, it took me a long time. It was months for me to get there. But once I did, I no longer cared about other foods. And it's, it's neat because when you experience that, you can go to something like a beautiful French bakery and everything looks like a piece of art, but you're not desiring anything. You actually like genuinely don't want anything. You're not averse. You're just like looking at it like a painting. So, so you get this level of freedom that I think a lot of people haven't experienced before when your body is actually in balance. Uh, it's, it's really a beautiful, beautiful thing that doesn't need so many mind tricks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, loads of people have 
certain diseases or certain conditions and say, well, I can't eat this particular food group. I can't eat meat. I can't. My doctor says don't eat uh, red meat or, or don't eat uh, animal produce because our dairy is a big one and say, don't eat dairy, you know, it'll upset you. But if they just started to focus on particular food groups that, you know, actually nail down a particular food group and stick to it, it may be different for some people. It may be dairy for one person. It may be red meat for another person. Then if you manage to stick to that for long term, then you really can change nutrition in a way that your nutrition could become medicine. Your nutrition could help you get over a certain condition it could really affect your immunity if, if you like you could talk about foods that can affect your immunity foods that could make you more immune or less immune yeah and there's actually a lot of foods that do that as well and i would say is if anyone is having an intolerance or an allergy to a real traditional food like meat or dairy something that's been eaten for thousands of years that usually can be reversed when you do a microbiome shifting diet um, i grew up not tolerating dairy and i eat dairy every day now so you can yeah and that's not uncommon i i see it regularly and i'm i'm not the only practitioner that does so when you work with the microbiome a lot of times someone having a food intolerance is your your sign your um your pointer in that you don't have a balanced microbiome if you're not processing this food correctly now if it's a more modern food like let's say um modern bread that's not fermented in the correct way like there's the beautiful soda bread in like um ireland and scotland that's fermented for three days or the french bread that's a different story but most people aren't eating that so if you're eating like the wonder bread at the market and having gluten issues that's i would say that's less of a microbiome issue because that actually has a toxin in it uh, a lectin that damages that it's an issue for everyone um, to some degree. It can be very mild, but it just depends on how good you are at detoxing and those kind of things. So um, yeah, and then there's foods that really impact the immune system. And that's that's something that I so wish was more common knowledge in our, our current day of coronavirus, because there's a lot of antiviral foods, and then there are foods that feed viruses, and there's foods that boost an immune system and foods that deplete an immune system as well. Yeah, there's different kind of amino acids, isn't there? I know um, lysine has been getting some good press because lysine is one that helps to fight off disease and infection and viruses, especially like you say with the coronavirus. But then there's also other ones that act against lysine. I can't just remember what the name is. Is it arginine? arginine? Yeah, mm -hmm. arginine, arginine and lysine. Mm -hmm. So what, what sort of foods could we then be looking at to get that balance right? Yes. So let's talk about viruses a little bit. So viruses aren't alive on their own. They require a host. And so when there's an epidemic like we're having right now, it's really an accident. They don't want to be killing the host. They actually don't want to be in our body. They want a host that will tolerate it for the rest of its life. And it can live a nice little cozy life without working too hard. Viruses are actually very lazy in general. And so if a body is inhospitable to the virus, it's not gonna hang around, it's gonna jump elsewhere. And certain things that you do can make it inhospitable. So like you said, lysine is a great one. Lysine, a lot of people are talking about it like it's an antiviral and it's easy to see it that way, but it's actually not. What it does is it makes the environment inhospitable. To viruses because viruses need another amino acid called arginine for them to uh, prosper basically right so they'll jump from one cell to the next and have 300 babies and then two days later you're in the hospital right because <laughs> that happens over and over and over again but to do that they need the amino acid arginine to do so and the cool thing is if you have a lot of lysine in your diet it suppresses any arginine 
in your diet. And so the virus doesn't have what it needs to grow. So the virus comes into your body and you just, you know, eliminate it and never get sick. Right. So, so that would be ideal in this situation. So high lysine foods are a lot of the foods that have been kind of uh, demonized and, and the foods that people are told not to eat these days, which is really not accurate. So, um, or not a good idea to avoid. So unless you have a personal intolerance, so that's going to be your uh, fleshy fish. So that's like your salmon, your cod, those kind of things are good. All of your meats, uh, any of them, honestly, from anything from venison to chicken to, to buffalo, it doesn't matter. And then all of your dairy. Dairy is extremely high lysine. I'd say it's the best. The ones that you want to avoid that are really high in arginine, some are in the animal world, although it's rare, it's mainly in the shellfish. So like the scallops and the shrimps, you'd want to avoid. Uh, otherwise, seafood is a is a green light food for viruses. Uh, well, meaning that you you want them to avoid the virus. And then the foods that can that have arginine in them, aside from shellfish, are your nuts, your seeds, your chocolates, your grains, and your beans. So so if you eat a, a paleo diet, but you're doing almond flour baked goods every day. That's not great <laughs> when there's a viral epidemic or let's say you're plant-based and you're eating beans for all of your meals or for a couple of meals a day, or you're vegan, you're, you're in a bit of trouble with a vegan diet with a viral epidemic for sure. I don't know how you get around that aside from eating a high percentage of fat from like coconut oil or something like that to lower your overall protein intake. Um, but so you can see how on most diets you can get into that issue. And there are there is arginine in the lysine rich foods, but lysine and arginine tend to work like a teeter totter. So if a food is high in arginine, like let's say uh, a beans are right, it'll have low amounts of lysine in it. But as long as there's more arginine than lysine, you can be you get yourself into a pickle with viruses. And then the other foods are with lysine are the same. So let's say you choose a steak, right, or a chicken, uh, that's going to have high amounts of lysine and then a little bit of arginine in it. But that lysine is going to suppress the arginine, so that can be really helpful. Other foods you guys can do as well. The Asian, a lot of the Asian mushrooms are antiviral. Shiitake is my favorite to use. I've seen it just do wonderful things for the the whole EBV family, CMV, uh, herpes, all of that. I see really great results with like one to two teaspoons of shiitake a day, or a quarter cup, half a cup. And I like the shiitake because it's the most affordable as well of all the Asian mushrooms. You can eat a lot of it, and it's not going to break the bank, which is really nice. And then uh, surprisingly. Cholesterol rich foods are antiviral. Cholesterol in our body is our natural antiviral. And I think that's why when this first epidemic was hitting, we saw so many cases in Northern Italy with the men with heart disease, because what do you give a man with heart disease, but a statin and you take a statin, you lower your cholesterol and now you can't fight off viruses, right? So you want cholesterol rich foods and you don't want to, you don't want a low cholesterol number right now. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and so many people think cholesterol is the bad guys, but cholesterol is the good guys. I mean, the way I think about it is evolution wouldn't have given us it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't be in every cell of our body if it was bad for us, right? So cholesterol must be good. I, I have described it before as it being like the ambulance to an accident. So when you have inflammation or something in your body, then cholesterol are the paramedics, the ambulance that gets there. And that's the thing that the doctors see. So they point the finger at the cholesterol and say, well, they must be the bad guys. They're not. That's the thing trying to help you. And I like that's you. Brilliant. And I like the way you say about the lysine being in all those foods that you listed, because 
the nutrient dense foods. And that's what I tried to promote. I tried to promote nutrient dense foods. And there's just another reason to eat the nutrient dense foods, get the lysine, make sure you're building that strong immune system from the inside out. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing I always tell my patients is to think about cholesterol, rename it because what it, what it is in the body is the healing hormone. And, and then think about like, okay, if it's called the healing hormone, do we really want to lower it? (laughs) Probably not. Right. Because it's what's healing our tissues. And it also, this is important for anyone who, you know, likes their sex drive or likes their sex hormones. It makes all our sex hormones. So if you have low cholesterol, you're not going to make your testosterone, your estrogen, your progesterone, all those things that make us balanced, healthy, happy people. Um, so the cholesterol is, is just really super important to have sufficient levels of, and to, to eat on a regular basis, because when you don't get it in your diet, your body starts to panic. It starts to panic and make it on its own and you get a a not great cycle going on with that a big stress cycle that's great and it's it's amazing what we've touched on today in such a short time and i know your time's limited but i just want to ask you about seed oils in food I, i always try and get people to steer away from the processed food because of the linolenic acid and the omega-6 and the high condensed seed oils that are now forcing their way into all our processed foods. And what do these seed oils do to the insides of our body? What do they do to our microbiome and how do they affect our cells? They, they're really, I would say the biggest issue. I, I don't think there's a silver bullet as to what all the issues are, but if you had to pick one, it would be seed oils. When I, um, when I, when I look at traditional diets around the world, they obviously eat all sorts of different foods in different regions, and yet they're in perfect health when they're eating their traditional foods. And some of them eat very high carb, and then others eat zero carb, like the Maasai, right? But in all of them, they all have under 3% of their calories coming from omega-6 fatty acids, and they're not eating seed oils. <laughs> no one did, right? These are in modern invention. And the problem with them is that they, they latch on, they're similar enough to our fatty, uh, our fatty uh, uh, channels that they latch on and create enormous amounts of havoc, tons of inflammation. They get in the way of communications going throughout the body. And so I would say of, of all the things, what you'd really want to avoid are any of the modern seed oils. But also with that, I, I've even seen issues like I, I think of one of my patients in DC, she's a trainer and I was looking at her food journal week after week. And I was like, this is a great food journal. And then she gets this uh, panel back and her omega-3, omega-6 is off. And I'm like, but you, you cook all this great food. And she goes, oh no, I don't cook. I don't cook at all. (laughs) I get everything from whole foods. (laughs) It was like the record, you know, snapping. And so, and so I had to revisit everything. And I was like, wait, so all this chicken and broccoli and all this steak and these, these are all cooked at whole foods and you just get them ready made. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, well, they use canola oil in all of their pre-made stuff. So, you know, she was getting this enormous amount of inflammation, even though she was quote unquote eating perfectly. And it, it really did derail her progress until we fixed that. So the seed oils are, are an issue for heart disease because they create inflammation in the arteries. And that's really what you're looking at. You're not looking at cholesterol levels. You're looking at the inflammation in the arteries. Um, they they get in the way of insulin and our blood sugar regulating hormones. So you, you get more hungry when you eat these. You tend to gain more weight, your cortisol cycle gets off. So they're, they're really quite problematic and, and really should be avoided if one can. That's great. Uh, just one last subject for you. <laughs> I've got, yeah. um, 
intermittent fasting is becoming a big thing now. A lot more people are taking up intermittent fasting. And I, I often see people who try to do intermittent fasting, but without first setting down a nutrient dense diet or without first thinking about what their nutrition is and then failing and saying, no, no, I can't intermittent fast. I'm far too hungry. Um, so in terms of intermittent fasting, what, how can it benefit your body and how can you set that up so that you can go forward with intermittent fasting and also take fasting perhaps a little bit further into maybe 24 hours, 36 hours into autophagy and things like that. I think if someone isn't able to fast, that's a huge sign that they have metabolic damage, no matter how healthy you look or feel. If you can't fast, if you get really hungry or shaky or hangry uh, within three to five hours of eating, that's a, that's a huge red flag that you need to work on your metabolic health. So what I like to do with people first is stabilize their blood sugar. And then we go into intermittent fasting. I find when people have great, like beautiful metabolic health and uh, they're not hungry, they don't have cravings and they're maybe eating more fat in their diet because fat triggers the satiety hormone. It makes fasting much more, um, much more appealing and easy. Then, then we bring in the fasting. So I'm always pretty gentle with people unless they have a condition like cancer where I can't, I can't wait, right? We've got to jump in. Otherwise I'm gentle. So we'll go in and we'll stabilize that blood sugar to where I can get them down to just like three meals a day, no snacking, which is a big deal for a lot of people. People are so used to grazing these days. So getting them off of doing that, it's really important for getting at insulin because insulin is spiked every time we eat. It doesn't matter what we eat. It could be zero carb. It still spikes the insulin. So I get them down to three meals and then we'll do that for a while. And if they're doing well with that, then we'll just gently push the breakfast or the dinner back, depending on what they would prefer by half an hour. And we do that for a few days and then another half an hour. So we go really gradual unless they naturally go into it. But fasting has enormous benefits. Um, you know, traditional societies typically did it by default. They didn't think they were doing anything. And even in, um, in our farming cultures, we tend to do it because you go and do your chores first and then you come in and you have a big brunch at like 11, right? And then you have your dinner at five and then you go to bed. So that's a pretty tight eating window that one would have. And the benefit of that is that uh, the longer that you have between food being consumed, the more the body can go in and regenerate these systems within the gut lining. So within the gut lining, you have 70% of your nervous system, 70%, that's more than you've got up in your noggin. And then you have 80% of your immune system. So there's a lot of repair and renewal that needs to be done in those systems to keep you healthy, especially in our modern environments with all these onslaughts, right? And so if we're constantly eating, the body can never go in and repair that tissue. It can't repair the villi and, and the integrity of the gut lining. So I always try to get my patients fasting uh, and a lot of times we'll just do intermittent fasting instead of the longer fasting, depending on their condition, because they're often very malnourished. They may have been eating great food, but not absorbing their food, which is a totally different thing, right? And so I like the intermittent fasting because I can have them eat in a one, four or six hour eating window and get tons of nutrient dense food into there and they get their calories, but they also get the benefit of a medical fast, which you start to get at 12 hours, although uh, so for those listening, that's 12 hours of not consuming any calories. So you can have water. Um, 
you start to medically, I mean, in studies, you start to see benefit at 12 hours. I, I don't see benefit in my practice at 12 hours. I tend to see it more starts at like the, I would say the 18 hour is when I really start to see the benefit. The 20 hour is kind of magical. And so is the 22, those are my favorite. And then as people get healthier and they're in more of the maintenance mode, or if they were more athletes uh, and, and not as sick as some of the people I work with, then we do the longer fast. So we'll do the 48 hour, the 70 I do a lot of 72 hours myself. I love those fasts um, and I do those with people as well, but we don't usually go and do the longer ones like the five day, the seven day and those kind of things. I see so much benefit from the 72. So I haven't seen as much of a need to. Yeah, I've spoke about it before and I give a quite a, a big window. I sort of said between 18 and, and 24 hours, you kind of looking around that sort of area to start seeing that it, it pay off for you. Uh, now, yeah. I've got to touch on it because you mentioned it about the cancer. I was yeah. almost vilified a couple of weeks ago when yeah. a, a member, a, a family friend, um, received a bad news that she'd had cancer. And uh, I said, as she tried looking at her nutrition, well, that opened an absolute can of worms. And as soon as I mentioned fasting, I was nearly kicked out of the door. So um, and just to elaborate a little bit on, on that for me, please. Yes, of course. So, you know, when someone gets cancer, they're given three options if they're lucky, right? And that's going to be chemo, radiation, surgery. Those are usually your options or watch and wait, um, those kind of things. And outside of that, we like to think as a public that there are no other options. Everything else is kind of quackery, right? Or like this weird thing that some practitioner is doing. But that's not actually true. We have decades worth of amazing scientific literature and research done on how diet affects cancer. And cancer for the last 80 years or so has been theorized to be a metabolic disease and more and more is coming out with that. And for those of you that don't know that that means blood sugar related. So how your body handles blood sugar. So it's a metabolic condition. It uses both lactic acid and it, it has two food, food sources, all cancer does. So cancer eats both glucose and that's anything that turns into glucose in the body. So that can be, even if you don't eat sweet foods, if you eat potatoes or rice or quinoa, that stuff is turning into sugar in the body and, and your cancer cells will eat that as fuel and then they will grow, right? They will uh, proliferate around the body. The cancer cells also will use something called glutamate, which is an amino acid. It's a protein that's found uh, really a lot in soy and in beans, but it's found in meats too. There's no protein that, if food that I know of where you can really fully avoid glutamate. However, you can limit how much glutamate you get by choosing the lower glutamate proteins. And then also by getting most of your calories from fat because cancer doesn't eat fat. <laughs> so that's an easy solution. It'll eat the carbs and the proteins. It won't eat the fat. And then there's some foods that will block glutamate. So you can in include those into your diet to help uh, with that. But no, there's, there's really astounding studies done through Stanford and a lot of the Ivy League schools on the East Coast of the United States for the last 30, 40 years on remissions in cancer. And I think all of us practitioners see it, but it's hard when a loved one gets it because no one believes you that this is like <laughs> something that actually can be really starved out. And the nice thing about it is that a lot of the dietary protocols can be done. So 
what I always tell people, I see a lot of cancer patients. And what I always tell people is that, listen, you don't have to just pick my camp. Like you can do everything you want. If you want to do chemo, radiation, surgery, go for it, but do this also. <laughs> like do this also, whether you're not doing anything else or not. And, um, and you'll, ha you'll have a much better outcome typically. So it's, it's a tool that you can use and it's, it's a really effective tool, uh, that you can use that, that is unfortunately not well known, but I think it will become so. I think what your experience was will become less and less as time goes on simply because the cancer diagnosis rate is just shooting through the roof and people will, you know, so often we don't realize how poor our medical system is until we ourselves get sick, right? We're kind of under this illusion that they'll save us. And when you actually become the patient, you realize like no one's saving you. <laughs> There's nothing coming. So, so you, you start to kind of try other things and do other things. And that's why we see people like Steve Jobs who did the fruitarian diet, which obviously didn't work. And this is something we should talk about. You do not wanna eat fruit when you have cancer. In fact, you don't wanna eat antioxidants at all. Antioxidants are what cancer uses. This is gonna sound crazy to people, but it's really important you all know this. Uh, cancer uses antioxidants to protect itself from the immune system seeing it. It's actually how the cancer cells camouflage themselves and are able to grow. And so you don't wanna eat a lot of antioxidants. In fact, I wouldn't eat any if you can avoid it when you have an active cancer diagnosis. Wow, check that out. I mean, you're an absolute font of knowledge. I mean, I'm just sat here listening to you like with my mouth wide open, some of the things that you're saying. And I, I already know a lot, but I feel like I could just talk to you for ages. Um, but I know your time's <laughs> precious and I don't want to take up any more of it. So if people can, uh, really, I'm, I'm, I'll be surprised if nobody does, but anybody who's listening should go and follow you straight away. Where can they find you? Oh, thank you. You can find me on Instagram. It's Mary Reddick uh, CNC. And then you can also come to my website where I kind of channel everything together and that's enableyourhealing.com. Brilliant. Thank you very much for today, Mary. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Amazing. Like I said, Mary is an absolute human Bible on how to live a thriving lifestyle through nutrition. She's a microbiome expert, and I just wanted to emphasize on something what she said. Something that she said was the sugar cravings you have come from an imbalance in your microbiome. Some of you may have these or have experienced these before especially if you are trying to change nutrition from a high-carb diet to a preferably fat-burning nutrition. Understanding this craving is your microbiome adjusting to the switch is great knowledge for building a better nutrition. A great indicator to a good microbiome and good gut bacteria are your stools. If you are having trouble in the bathroom, then it is definitely time to look at your nutrition. I'm pleased we touched on the biggest metabolic condition of all, cancer. I feel more people need to know how cancer cells work to understand the disease. A big, big thing to know is cancer will not grow if it's not fed. These cancer cells will not feed on fats but will thrive on carbohydrates and sugars, and it's just adding fuel to the fire. More studies and research are being done into fasting to aid curing cancers, 
with amazing results. So hopefully it's only a matter of time before it is common knowledge that nutrition and fasting are super tools to avoid and recover from chronic diseases. Now, I've linked Mary's website into the description. So if you want to look into her further and to get more help from her, then log on to our website, enableyourhealing.com. Like I say, it's in the description. So go see more info there. And you know where our own website is by now at humannutritionlifestyle.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. So let's carry on with a brilliant community we've got helping you every day live your best. I just recently posted on our Instagram page and our Facebook about a question and answer episode that I'm putting together. So if you do have any questions or you do have any subjects that you think will be really beneficial to you, for us to talk about on the podcast i'm gonna hopefully get it out in a couple of weeks time i've got a few questions already a few subjects to talk about already nobody as yet has sent in a voice clip but if you really want to feature on the episode on the podcast send in your voice clips to me email me or direct message them to me and we can get you featuring asking your question on the podcast but if it's just a question you want an answer to or just a subject that you want to cover then send them through to me and we'll get them on a podcast for you very soon until then have a very nice day and i shall see you next time